trees went out to name themselves the king. This is Grace Talks, a production of Martin UMC, an open and inviting United Methodist Church in Martin, Michigan, a co-charge with Shelbyville United Methodist Church, which worships on Sunday at 11 a.m. Martin worships Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and we would love to see you there. But the olive tree said, should I stop making all that I know as human beings? Our scripture text today comes from Jeremiah chapter 32. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, who is the, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the, of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah where King Zedekiah had confined him. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle Shalem, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field that is an Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. For the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. And then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth for my cousin Hanamel and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. And then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Mahazah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deeds of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In their presence I charged Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may, may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, God our Lord and Savior. Amen. It's hard to believe that the month of September is already past, and it's been in quite an adventure as I've walked, as we've walked together through the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has provided us with something of a rocky road in our journey through this past month. As we've noted throughout, Jeremiah doesn't really have an optimistic outlook at the world. He seems pretty down. If he were alive today, there is a really good probability that Jeremiah would be diagnosed with clinical depression or mania. And so it might seem strange today, in the passage, when Jeremiah ultimately offers a sign of hope to a distressed and broken people. But first, the context. A breakdown of the passage. War. 
Jerusalem is under siege. The Babylonian army is on the verge of sacking the city and taking its inhabitants prisoner. All hope is lost. But Jeremiah, meanwhile, is imprisoned by a king who is not happy with the prophecy that Jeremiah has brought to him. Which is understandable because, as with many of Jeremiah's prophecies, the prophecy that he brings to the king is not optimistic. The prophecy that he brings to the king is that the king will be taken to Babylon, where he will meet the Babylonian king, and there he shall face judgment. And we must remember here again, because it always bears repeating, prophecy is not magic, prophecy is not soothsaying, prophecy is not fortune-telling, prophecy is speaking hard truths to those in power. Prophecy is telling the rich and telling the powerful, telling the rulers, in this case, telling the king, things they don't want to hear. As we learn in this passage, the response to Jeremiah's message, in the response to Jeremiah's message to the king, is not positive. Because, for one, the prophecy Jeremiah speaks seeks to presume to tell the king what to do. It tells the king that, no, he won't escape the situation he's found himself in. In fact, it would probably be better if he didn't escape. Jeremiah's message is one of pessimism. The battle is lost. If you fight the Babylonians, you will lose. And as one might expect, for words like this, words which can at best be considered subversive, if not, subversive, if not outright traitorous to the king, and to the kingdom at large. Jeremiah is, is imprisoned. Hard truths are rarely received well by those who need to hear them. And yet, despite Jeremiah's pessimism, despite Jeremiah's lack of a message of a promising outcome for the siege, he still meets with his cousin, who proceeds to sell him his uncle's field. Which is a strange thing to do, we might admit, there in the middle of a siege. Jeremiah, in the middle of destruction and ruin, is doing the single most insane-seeming thing that he could be doing. He's rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Which looks strange, especially as we examine and we consider what this might mean for us as we look at our own future as individuals, as a local church, as the church universal. What are the fields that we are being called to buy? For us, this message stands as an opportunity, a means for us to examine and question our own approach to the message of God's faithfulness in the midst of a world seemingly on the brink of disaster. In a world where it seems so often like things are simply falling apart around us. In a world of so much noise that we might find ourselves, like Jeremiah, pessimistic with no real expectation that anything's going to get any better. And yet Jeremiah models for us a vision, on the a vision on the focus of the kingdom that he's been offered. 
Jeremiah has been given this prophecy, this vision, this idea of the people's return to the land even after the, peop- even after the foreign armies destroy it. In the chapter prior to this one, there in chapter 31, Jeremiah offers his prophecy of the people's restoration, the people's return to the land of Judah, the land of Israel. Despite the ruin and the destruction the kingdom of Judah is facing, Jeremiah looks towards a restoration. Jeremiah looks towards a redemption which is fueled by God alone. And so here in our passage today, Jeremiah buys the field in order to redeem it. In order to restore it in a time when it's unlikely that the field can be harvested or planted. Despite the world around Jeremiah looking so grim, despite the world around Jeremiah being in a place of dog-eat-dog, Jeremiah bases his hope in the promise of the Lord's redemption. When it comes to hope, when it comes to what Jeremiah is doing, what Jeremiah models for the people, he's modeling an image of faithfulness to God and to God's kingdom in that he's investing in the hope for something he will never live to see. When it comes to being faithful to God's promise of a kingdom, God's promise of a better future, we have to admit that when we invest in the kingdom of God rather than in the things of the world, when we pull our investments away from the things of the world, when we buy the field, there's a real likelihood that we will never actually get to see what we're investing in. Jeremiah never gets to see his field. A few short chapters after this one, in chapter 43, Jeremiah is taken with the king and his household into Egypt, where he dies in an untold chapter of the Bible in the king's self-imposed and unfaithful exile. Being faithful to God, investing in the kingdom of God, sometimes means doing things that simply don't make sense in the world's eyes. It's hearing the words of Christ for what they are, a message for us telling us how we are to live like Christ. If we've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, we can see that it's offering an image of the world that doesn't look like how the world is supposed to work. Do not repay evil for evil. Turn the other cheek. Do not repay violence for violence. Change the way we live in the world, even if it means that we are willingly avoiding the urge to keep up with the Joneses. To invest in hope means to live and work towards a better future, even if it is a future that we are unlikely to see. To quote a hit musical, one of my favorites, it's planting seeds in a garden that we don't get to see. I got a high five for anyone who can tell me what that was after the sermon. It's a change in the way we expect the world to behave. It's a change in the way we expect ourselves to behave. To invest in the kingdom of God is to invest in the long-term good for the many over the short-term gain for the few. 
It's acknowledging and working against inhuman business practice, against climate change, against the pillaging of the environment for that short-term gain, against the consumerist buy-buy-buy culture that tell us that we will never be satisfied until we have that next toy and then the next one. It's living into that calling of enough. It's receiving for the day our daily bread and not our yearly bread. When it comes to investing in hope, we are left with an option. We can accept the world as it is right now. We can accept the way things are. And we can live just as naturally as how we've been living. We can never hope, we can never dare to dream of anything ever getting better. We can refuse to dream. We, we can refuse to dream dreams. We can refuse to see visions. We can refuse to prophesy something better. We can refuse to have hope in the face of the world's pessimism. We can seek to never change the way we live, the way we behave, and in turn, we can stay the way we are. Or we can invest in something different. We can invest in hope. We can take our time, we can take our resources, we can take our money and our voices and our power and our privilege, and we can buy the field. We can buy that field of promise that we might never get to see because that field represents God's faithfulness. It represents hope. It represents that God is doing a new thing in our world. God is doing a new thing in our midst. I said earlier that Jeremiah seems pessimistic. But I didn't say that he's hopeless. There's a difference then between optimism and between hope. Optimism relies on human works. Optimism relies purely on the things that we can do. It relies on idols. It relies on the things we make with our own hands. It relies on the things and the forces of this world getting their act together. And when the storms of life come, when the siege comes, we find that the idols, the works of our hands, the things we create can't save us. They can't actually offer us any protection. But hope, well, that's something different. Hope relies on God. Hope is built on God's promise that even if we can't see what God is bringing about, God is working in us to bring it about, provided we're willing to listen. Hope relies on the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst and in the world. God, hope relies on God. Hope is the expectation, the trust that God is working towards something good, something better. which means that we have to be willing and open to work towards that good, which means that we have to be working to move towards it. We have to be going on towards sanctification, towards Christian perfection, both as individuals and as a corporate body. 
because there's nothing that we do that's truly individual. Every act we do engages in society, engages in public life. Because together, not apart, we are the body of Christ at work in the world. There's only so much I can do. There's only so much you can do, but together, as the church, imagine. We are the hands and feet and the mouth and ears. We are the ones who are called to do the work of God in the world, remembering that every step we take towards the kingdom is not one that we found, found, that is founded by our own hands, but is rather the work of God through us. And so while optimism can be easily dashed apart by the rocks of life, optimism can so easily be jaded, so easily be lost to the so-called wisdom of age. Hope is something that endures. Hope is something that lasts. And so we always have to be optimistic that the world will just work itself out. No. Because as Jeremiah finds out here in this passage, there is the very real possibility that things won't work out for the short term. The hope of Jeremiah is not for immediate comfort or salvation from the problems that the people face. Rather, Jeremiah is offering hope that despite the people paying the consequences for their own mistakes, God will still be paid. God will still be faithful. God will still restore the people to the land. And so in the face of all the world's problems that we see every day when we walk out the door, when we turn on the news, when we read the newspaper, do we have to feel optimistic? Do I always feel optimistic when I look at the facts surrounding climate change? Do I always feel optimistic that we'll easily solve gun violence or racism or war or inhuman practices of corporations and businesses that are looking out for profit and not for people? No. But I have hope. I have hope that God is a God of restoration and redemption. And even when we bring about our own destruction, even when we face the consequences of swearing our allegiances to lesser things, to powers and principalities and idols and nations and institutions and ideologies that are not God, God will still work to restore his people. God will still declare that we are his people and he is our God. Amen.